So once again, it is a privilege to, to be in front of you to share the word of God. It's also a wonderful reality um, that we get to come together week to week to fellowship, to spur one another on, to hear, to be taught. And I know I don't say this enough, but I just love this church family. I love, and this week was just a testament to that. The, the outpouring of support is one of our own kind of, kind of needs that we've just been asked, you know, how is he doing? How are things going? It's like the love and care that this family has, which is exactly what it should be. Um, so I just, I love this church family as I've been a part of it for over two decades now, which I, it's hard to believe it's gone back that far, but it has. Um, and, and I don't want to be like the, you know, I heard a story once that like there was a husband that told his wife, you know, I told you I loved you once. If anything changes, I'll let you know. You know, sometimes we kind of almost treat like the church family like that. Well, you know, I like it. You know, we kind of take it for granted. But I hope this morning that uh, we can uh, come here joyfully and excited to fellowship with one another, excited to be together with the family. Um, may the Holy Spirit speak to each one of us this morning as we look into Romans 6 once again in this gospel-saturated life. So I just want to do a little bit of review here um, in this section that we've entitled Life of the Gospel. Now, we've, you've seen this slide uh, many times, and so we are in this Romans 6 area, the life in the gospel. So Paul has clearly shown our need for the gospel, um, and he's unmistakably shown that the way of the gospel is Jesus Christ. So now beginning in chapter 6, which we did a couple of weeks ago when I, when I went through 1 through 6 there, 1 through 7, uh, we began the section life in the gospel. So because of all that's been said in the previous five chapters, because of all that that's been said, now this is how we should live. This is the difference. This is the life that we should have. This is what sanctification looks like. This is what living a life devoted to God looks like. This is what being set apart looks like. Uh, this is what being saved from the power of sin looks like. This is the life in the gospel. So if you recall a couple weeks ago when I spoke to you on verses 1 through 7, the big takeaway was the old man is dead, basically. The old man is gone. The sinful nature, this old nature that we had before coming to Christ is completely gone. It's done because now we are completely immersed into Christ. That word baptized that's used in the text just means immersed. So now we are immersed in Christ completely in him and our death or his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We share in Christ. We are immersed in Christ. So that's not where it ended though. That's not where it ended. Just as Christ resurrected, we too resurrect to a new life. And Christ's death, is, like I said, is our death. His burial is our burial. That's, that's what it is. So Paul started with a question that he knew would be asked. Because of this truth, because of this nature being now the old gone, the new has come, there's a question that is going to be on people's minds. Because as he preached this gospel of grace, this was out of the ordinary, to say the least, in that time. He said, sin can't outdo grace because grace will always abound. That was the end of chapter 5, if you remember. And so he began to answer this question that he knew was coming or probably was already asked to some degree, that are we to continue in sin so grace can abound? And if you remember, Paul very strongly rejected that notion and said, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it because how can one who died to sin still live in it? So you've been made new. And the new man is in the likeness of Jesus. And this is the sanctifying work of God in our lives. Then, Paul went into more detail. Last week, as Brent went through, if you remember, Paul stressed the need to understand what Jesus has accomplished for us. 
Brent exhorted us last week to, uh, that we tend to, to minimize at times, or we can minimize all Jesus has done for us and maybe not fully grasp the immensity of Jesus' work on our behalf. We don't fully grasp that. And we, won't, and, we, and we won't fully grasp it till we see him face to face, but sometimes we just sell it short. Sometimes we, we, we like, okay, we're forgiven, and, and we kind of stop there. So we sell it short, and that reflects sort of a sold short sort of faith. That's hard to say. But Brent very practically led us through the needing to accept what Jesus has done for us. It is true. We need to think that we need to think about that correctly. Probably more importantly, we need to think about that biblically and think about the reality of what Jesus has done for us. As a result, this is a change in our thinking. And we should not let sin be the king of our lives or have dominion or be master over us. We shouldn't let ourselves or our bodies or our members, as the text says, to to be presented to things that are ungodly now or sinful. We shouldn't let them be used as tools of unrighteousness because now we're meant for something else. So now, in the new life with Christ, our tools are meant to be used for the kingdom. The old is gone, so the practical conclusion is that the dead man is now gone. It doesn't mean we just simply avoid certain things now. And we'll talk about this more throughout this morning. It doesn't mean we avoid certain things. It doesn't mean we just go out with, go without some certain things. It means we actually do something different. There is a new rhythm that Brent reminded us of last week. And we find joy in that rhythm because it's something we haven't experienced before. This is the new life that the gospel brings. And then lastly, in verse 14, that was covered last week, it says sin will have no dominion. Or the NAS says master. It will not be mastered over us. There's no, there's no master or dominion over us in sin anymore because we are new. The old man is dead. The old man under the law is dead. The old man who is under sin and mastered by sin is dead because the new man is in Christ. Grace is now alive. Jesus is the new master in town, and sin no longer reigns. That may have been a long review, but I wanted to remind you of the flow of chapter 6 and where we've gone as we explore this life in the gospel section. So with that said, let's go ahead and read our text for this morning. If you would stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Romans 6, um, as we read our section, verses 15 through 19, you will certainly notice um, some familiar themes and even some words carry on. And, and a lot of what you're going to hear this morning is, again, what's been said in some ways already, because Paul is really just wanting to hammer these facts home. So turn in your Bibles, uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. I'll be reading from the ESV, and it's on the screen as well. It says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
Lord, I thank you for your word, and I just pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would be the teacher, that you would put in our hearts and our ears what you would want us to know and what want us to learn and what us to think about, what you want to encourage us with, or encourage us with, and what you want to convict us with. So, Lord, open us up to your word and your word up to us that we may understand uh, what you want us to what you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, the first thought that may have came to your mind this morning is, haven't we already done this? Haven't we already done this? Didn't we cover this a couple weeks ago? And if you're thinking that, uh, the reason is very obvious, the reason why you're thinking that, because this text is strikingly similar to the structure of the first few verses. Let me show you. I'll put this on the screen. So, when we look at verses 1 and verse 15, in the yellow there, they start very similarly, very similarly. And we see that it's the start to the question, what then? What then? And it's obviously referring to what came before that. So Paul is seeking to answer the critics' questions that of the, of the gospel of grace can seem to make sin no big deal. But it is. So Paul begins his answer. Then Paul moved to the blue section on the screen, which is hard to see back there, but you guys see a little better. The blue section of the screen. And, and what, what, this is, what this is saying is it's not really a word for word the same thing, but it's similar ideas. It's a similar idea, and I do say it's ideas in plural because the main idea there is he's addressing that he's preaching this gospel of grace, and he will not outdo, uh, or sin will not outdo any of this grace that's there. Uh, chapter 5 makes that clear. Grace will abound, but it also puts us in a new environment, as the end of our section last week told us. We're not under law anymore. We're under, we're under grace. We're in a new environment. We're on a new team. We're no longer under the law as we saw last week. And so once again, the question is, is sin that big a deal? But notice the one difference there. Notice the word continue. Continue is present in verse 1, and it is not there in verse 15. And a couple of weeks ago, I kind of made a well, sort of a big deal out of this word continue, as it's one of the few times I'm ever going to pronounce a Greek word to you, epimeno. So in the Greek, that's what it is. And the weight of that word is important because it carries this idea of a habitual persistence. It's a sort of permanence. This is a habit. This is, this is a persistent thing that we remain doing. It's a constant. Do we stay persistent in a life of sin? That's what that word continue means. So there in that section that we covered a couple weeks ago, Paul's not referring to the believer who sometimes makes a bad choice, and sins. He's not referring to the one who falls into sin occasionally. Nor is he making the case for all Christians to be sinless because we're still weak and imperfect in the flesh. We still battle temptation. Yet, the distinction between the occasional mess-up and the weakness of the flesh is the willful, unrepentant, habitual sin pattern. That's the difference. So notice verse 15 the word continue isn't there because the grammar is different. Paul's already established that the one who continues in habitual sin, this is forbidden. Now in verse 15, he's reflecting more of that occasional, that dabbling in sin. Paul's already answered that continuing habitual sin is not something that belongs or should be present because the old man is dead, crucified and resurrected to something new. 
But because of our flesh and because of this fallen world and because we're not glorified in our new bodies yet, sin still exists. Remember, we are dead to sin, but sin is not dead. Sin is not our master any longer, but it still exists. So now, he moves on to this focus of occasional sin. So we're not under the law, which means... You know, remember, not being under the law was something that would be shocking to the Jewish reader. It was all law. I mean, you do this, and you do these things, you do all these things, you check off the boxes, you make the list, because that's what you must do under this law. Under grace just would have been mind-blowing to them. So we're not under the law, it means we're under grace, and if we're under grace, should we be considered just with a little bit of sin? is kind of the message in our text this morning. Should we be considered just or concerned just with a little bit of it? Can we dabble in sin because we're not under the law anymore? We're under grace. Trying to think about how to explain this, maybe to put an image in your head. Think of a pool in summertime. I know this morning that's hard because it's like minus 30 out there, it seems like. So think of a pool in summertime. You know, some... Usually kids, but I've seen adults do this too. They get to a pool, they just fully commit, and they jump right in. They just jump right in. And the, but most of us, as we get older as adults, we, we kind of maybe just pull up our pant legs and like sit on the edge and dabble in, the, in there. You know, It's like we don't want to jump all the way in. We just want to sit there and kind of dabble and be comfortable um, and just put our toes in the water. Some will continue to be wet all day long because they're in the pool all day, but then there are those that will just sit on the edge Sit on the edge and dabble in it. So can we treat sin the same way as the pool? Is what Paul is asking this morning or what the question is. Are we, to, are we to say that, well, we're not fully to live in that continual habitual lifestyle, but I can go ahead and dip my toes in it every now and again because, after all, I'm under grace, not the law. So what, is, what Paul has done up here in the blue sections of these verses, he has dealt with a continual sin pattern and the occasional sin. He separated them. He's asked the question from both perspectives. And even though the questions are different, the answer is not. So now turning to the red section on the screen, by no means. And I remember I said to you a couple weeks ago, if I said that correctly, I would have shouted that. By no means. It's the strongest phrase that could be used in the New Testament, in the New Testament Greek, to express the complete and total dissatisfaction. This is an outrageous idea, the rejection of whatever was said before, by no means. This was repulsive to Paul. The answer is no with a big exclamation point. It's, it's no three times over. The idea that sin is no big deal is just absolutely outrageous. And Paul makes that clear because he couldn't have said it any stronger. So the major thing to understand here is why this is so repulsive to Paul. It's so repulsive to Paul because the very purpose of God's grace was to free us from sin Grace is not there to give us a license to sin. Grace not only justifies us, but it transforms us into a life that is now saved. We have gone from an environment of law and being condemned into an environment of grace. And our transformed life should reflect that grace. You might remember Brent saying that the gospel 
And this almost seems like a very, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a risky statement in some ways. The gospel is not just mere forgiveness, but it's true. I mean, it is forgiveness, but there's so much more. You might remember me saying it's beyond just a transaction. It's a, it's a transformation. It's not just a, a transaction from guilty to not guilty. It's a transformation that takes place in a believer's life. We must not sell the gospel short and minimize all that we have in Jesus. You know, I was thinking, you know, you've probably seen the bumper sticker that says, Christians, I hope nobody has this bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, right? That we've seen that. And maybe we even have it, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. I mean, it is right. We're certainly not perfect, but we're more than just forgiven. We're more than just forgiven. It, it, it kind of it mess, messes with it a little bit, the part of the part of what the glorious gospel does is it forgives us, but it also gives us Christ's righteousness. It makes us new and empowers us to live lives of obedience as we have the Holy Spirit in us now. I guess all that would be a little bit of a long bumper sticker, so they shorten it, but we are more than just forgiven. There's so much more. And forgiveness is wonderful, but we have more in Christ. And the final parallel I'll bring up between the first few verses of the chapter and our text this morning is this phrase in the purple, do you not know? Again, this is Paul saying that this is so true, it needs no proof. It needs no proof, even though he's going to give us some more, but he's like, you guys, you should already know this. It is so foundational, so true, so, so good that it, it's something that doesn't demand any more because it's just true. Do you not know? How could you be so ignorant of such obvious truth? He's saying, what I told you, what I'm about to tell you, shouldn't even be in question. These are things that should just be known. So at the beginning of the chapter, Paul stresses that because Christ died, we've been immersed into that death as well. He's explaining how we've died to sin and we can't still live in it. This truth was all accomplished by God and what he has done for us. He's radically changed who we are. So at the beginning of the chapter, Paul is stressing these facts. Now he moves on to the more of our, our attitude. So in light of what's been said, in light of these facts, in these facts, how should we live in light of being a new person? So Paul uses the analogy of slavery to communicate his point. So the concept of slavery would have been well known among the Roman believers. It's estimated that the majority of them would have come from the slave class. Very clearly, he stresses that you are slaves to the one you obey, and they would have understood what that meant. So keep in mind, the whole point of chapter 6 could really be divided into two parts. The first 14 verses, the last two sermons, really have communicated the point that a believer is dead to sin and alive to God. Now as we enter verse 15... And to the end of the chapter, he argues that believers have been set free from slavery, so sin, so or we've been free, set free from slavery to sin, so then we can become slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. So because of this great truth, we are now dead to sin. This should affect our thinking about sin and whom we choose to obey. We cannot obey two masters. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, there is no middle ground here. You either obey sin or you obey righteousness. You know, occasionally even the secular world gets this right. 
I'm fairly confident that I've never quoted Bob Dylan from the pulpit before. We're going to do a first this morning. In his 1970s song, Serve Somebody, he got it right. If you know it, don't sing it. But here it is. If you're going ha- to have to serve, or you're going to have to serve somebody, yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, whether Dylan was paying attention to Romans 6 or not, I do not know. I have no idea, but he was right. He was right. We will serve somebody as slaves. Our old self served the devil, but the new man is now inclined to obey the Lord, which leads to righteousness or makes us slaves to righteousness as Later on, verse 18 says, you know, interestingly, you may talk to some people, and I've had this conversation with people, and they say they're just resistant to Christianity because it's just, they don't want to give up all their freedom, freedom that they have. They don't want to live by a set of rules under uh, under what I would say their concept of a misunderstood God. They don't want to live under these rules of God, but the irony is there that apart from Christ, They truly have no freedom because Christ is freedom. When one comes to Christ, we don't lose freedom. We gain freedom because the unsaved person under the old nature is not free. They are enslaved to evil and they are enslaved and bound to sin. They can't choose obedience to the Lord. They are enslaved. Therefore, they are not free. All people are either under the lordship of Satan or the lordship of Christ. But in our freedom, we need to understand we are dead to sin. Under Christ, we have freedom because it frees us from sin. But that sin is not dead, as I mentioned. Sin is not an impossibility. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have mentioned in verse 12, as Brent covered last week, that we shouldn't let it reign in our mortal body. Paul just labored over a number of verses telling us how the old man is dead, but then he reminds us, don't let sin reign. Don't give over to its passions. Don't let your body be used for something that it's no longer meant to be used for. There's a new master, this Lord Jesus Christ, and that changes everything, including how we feel about sin, whether it's okay just to dabble here and there. And Paul says, no. No, how can you do that? How can you do that? Because you now need to be slaves to Christ. You obey Christ, and that leads to righteousness. This is why it's so important to remember the gospel offers more than forgiveness. It's more than a transaction. It offers a relationship. It offers a transformation. And where. And, and when, we, when we live and know about the one who's made us new, this, this should cause us to be obedient to that one. And this might seem confusing, so let me try an illustration. You know, we're legally free. We're legally free, but we can still choose to live like a prisoner. This might be similar to one of those, uh, you know, a person who spent three or four decades in a prison. That's a long time to spend in a prison, and, and they're there so long, they're, they're, they, get used to, they get used to being in prison, and, and they don't know what it's like to live outside of prison, outside of those walls, to live free. They say these people have become institutionalized, is the term for that. Even when their freedom is granted, they still want to go back to the old prisoner's life. Similarly, we too can become institutionalized 
in the old life of sin, in the old life of imprisonment, in the sinful habits, even though we've been granted freedom. At times, we can still choose to live like a prisoner. We already know from the beginning of the chapter that a truly justified believer cannot continue in this habitual sin, but Paul recognizes our new nature is still incarcerated by the flesh. And at times, it could even appear that sin and disobedience has a dominating factor in a Christian's life. But that should be short-lived because our new nature should not put up with it. We cannot indefinitely endure sinful living. And why is all that even possible? Why is all that even possible? How can we choose something different? Well, thanks be to God. I love where Paul goes next. Thanks be to God. In the preceding verses, if you notice, I'm not going to put them up there, but they're in your Bibles in front of you. In the preceding verses, there's a lot of you in there. A whole lot of you. What do I mean by that? Verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God. Verse 12. Let not sin reign in your body. Verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead. See what I mean? There's a lot of you in there. We could walk away. There's a lot of things I have to do or that I have done in order to gain this salvation. But he laid out a few things you should, you should not let happen. Yes, that's true, because in our obedience, there should be a changed life, a sanctified life. There should be changed desires. But I love the transition he makes here in verse 17 because he takes us back to the foundation of salvation. It is from God and God alone. Thanks be to God. Paul didn't thank his readers for doing better. He didn't thank them for their own wisdom or spiritual determination because none of that would have been even possible. None of that would have been even possible had not God drawn them to himself. Salvation is from God. So the people are sanctified and living in obedience. It's a reflection of what God has enabled in their life who has given them victory over death and sin. Really what Paul is doing by saying thanks to God is acknowledging that it's only God who can do this and he's acknowledging his gratitude and appreciation of God's grace. We are saved completely and totally by God's grace and power. And this is what enables us to live obediently. You were under the continual unbroken slavery of sin That is the position of every man when they're born. Remember back in Romans 3, there is none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and there is none who does good, not even one. Even the one who looks outwardly moral and good, apart from God, is a lost soul enslaved to sin. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves have become obedient from the heart. Key word there, were were. You once were a slave to sin. This is in the past. This is in the past because God has done an amazing work. He's done an amazing work and we are thankful for that work. It's in the past because now we become obedient from the heart. So faith and obedience there, as we can see, are undeniably related. They go together. There can be no godly obedience without faith. We are saved by faith, yes, As obedience neither produces or maintains salvation, but obedience is unquestionably a characteristic of those who are saved. A belief in the heart is from the inside. 
That's what it says over and over again, that salvation is, or I've said over and over again, salvation is not just a transaction, it's a transformation. We're given a new heart. It's a new nature. We shouldn't be surprised by this. This was God's plan. Take you to a few spots here in Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. It says that a couple times in Ezekiel. And then this in Hebrews and, which is just quoting from Jeremiah, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. So he gives a new heart, and then he writes on the heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. How can we obey? Because God has given us a new heart. And with a new heart, we're inclined to new things. And one of those major things is obedience. Obedience from the heart toward the gospel, toward God's word. Notice what the text says, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You know, I use the ESV, the New American Standard actually says, instead of standard here, it says form. And I like that word actually better here. They both, obviously it comes from the same word, it means the same thing, but it might help us give a better idea. Obviously, if something is the standard, it is right. To walk away from the standard would be moving into dangerous territory. But the word form here, I think, carries this word better, the idea better. It's, it's like a mold. You've been specifically molded. And really, in the, in the root of it, it's molded molten metal. <laughs> so it's a mold. So the gospel, the word of God, is the mold we must be poured into. We must be delivered into this mold. Because that word committed there really means delivered. So we must be molded in truth and delivered by truth. So I can say it this way. As a believer is delivered into God's word, he is shaped because of God's word. There's a new mold because of God's word. When God makes a new spiritual creation out of somebody, he casts them into the mold of his divine truth. The old saying, you can't fit a square peg into a round hole, might help us out here. It, that, that's what's happening. We are different shape and we can't fit back into the old pattern because God has molded us by his word, by his gospel, by his truth, and by his grace. Therefore, as we live out the new life, as we live out our sanctified life, we must, not only, we must not try to squeeze back into the old mold of the world. We must resist the evil temptation that's trying to get us back into our sinful mold that God has delivered us from. We need to realize all we have in Christ. And through obedience, we must let God continue casting us into the image of Jesus. Again, Paul reiterates the reason we can't go back is because We've been set free from sin, and now we are slaves of righteousness. And you might think for a moment, we've talked about this freedom already a little bit, and you might be thinking, well, this is kind of a paradoxical statement. It's kind of like it doesn't make sense. If we're set free, then, and, and how, then how are we still slaves? It's like, what's going on? If we are still slaves to God, is this genuine freedom might be the question. Yes, we are set free to become slaves, but what have we been set free from? We've been set free from the crushing power of sin. We've been set free from being mastered by sin and evil and Satan. And because of that freedom we're now granted, we have the right to be slaves of God who is all good, who is perfect, who is creator, who is master, who is sustainer, who is healer, all good. I'm okay being a slave of somebody that's all good. That's freedom. That's a good master. Remember, you've got to choose somebody, no matter what. There's only two choices. We're going to be slaves to something, 
rather someone, is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be the devil? As believers, we must face the fact that our salvation means quite literally just a change of bondage. Once we served sin, evil, and death, but now we serve in freedom, we serve Christ. Pointing back to the original question, are we to sin, Paul leaves no doubt as he arrives at the full answer of the question here. No, we're not to dabble in sin because we are now slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. And that impacts the way we live because of who we serve, who we get to serve. It is a privilege. It reminds me of a well-known verse in Joshua 24. Many of you probably have it on your wall at your home. I do. It says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very familiar verse. But do you know what surrounds that verse? Joshua told the people not to serve false gods. He's telling them, put away the gods of your fathers. Don't serve them. And he repeatedly challenges them over and over again. And eventually the people come away saying in verse 24 of chapter 24 of Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Again, there were only two options. And Joshua knew that. It's either going to be evil or it's going to be good. It's either going to be Satan or it's going to be God. You've got to choose to serve somebody. You see, the gospel of grace doesn't create a license to sin. It does not create a have-it-your-own-sort-of-way salvation. In no way does Paul say Christians can direct their own way and make up their own standard. May it never be. <laughs> we are now subject to Christ. We've simply, we've simply exchanged one form of slavery to another form of slavery, but in that, there is freedom. That might boggle our minds a little bit, but if we think all that we have in Jesus, I am truly free. It is God's standard now that I must obey, and the result is joyous, and it's satisfying, ultimately leading to life and peace. And if I have something leading to eternal life with God and eternal life with Jesus, and it's, and it's leading me a life to peace, then I know of no better way to find freedom than that. One commentator said, we were wholehearted sinners, even if only our desires. Now we are to be wholehearted servers, but doing so requires grace, repentance, forgiveness, the lordship of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the restraint of our desire, and a disciplined effort. Thanks be to God that he gives us the ability to believe and obey as he prompts us by his sovereign grace. Yes, salvation is indeed life-changing. It's a life-changing work to say the least, and it's brought about by God's power alone. But understand, it does not work apart from our obedience and will. There's a, for lack of a better term, a participation and a responsibility that we have, even though it's sovereignly brought about by the Lord. Thanks be to God for the work he has done in bringing about our salvation to his people. He's brought salvation to us. He's brought it through Jesus. And this is a major transformation he brought. He brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Thanks be to God who draws us to Jesus. John 6, 44. And thanks be to God who gives us victory because of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. So we're drawn to Jesus. One pastor says it this way, God has no unwilling children in his family and no unwilling citizens in his kingdom. Thanks be to God because he draws us. So Paul closes out this section of our text this morning with almost what some could say is an apology. 
in some ways, and we've talked about the slavery analogy a little bit. Clearly, slavery is not a positive thing, and it wasn't then, it isn't now, but it was a very well-known thing. It was humiliating illustration to many of them because of his Roman readers, many of them were probably slaves. And like I said, most of them were from the slave class. In fact, it's even been said that there were more slaves than citizens in those times. So the people of the time would have really understood this concept of slavery and what submission to a master meant. And they probably have ample examples of bad masters. <laughs> and in short, or then, and then it's sort of, you know, it's an echo of verse 13. This last, this last verse here is an echo of verse 13 when Paul said, Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. Then you can go to the next slide. Sorry, I didn't put it in. There you go. Uh, don't present your members uh, for instruments of unrighteousness. So if you remember, Brent used the tool analogy last week. You know, he loves tools. We all love tools. Uh, and you can do some really good work with tools, but you can also use them incorrectly for the purpose that they were not designed for, and that can be pretty destructive. So in verse 13, the basic idea was that believers are people who have been brought from death into life. In verse 19, he focuses on being set free from sin and becoming slaves to righteousness. There's a result now that is happening. Paul says, for you once did this, but now you no longer do because of what I've already told you about in the first 14 verses. So recognizing your status has changed because you've been made alive in Christ. That's the idea. To say it another way, you need to recognize that your environment has changed. You don't work for the old boss anymore. You don't work for the offices of lawlessness, if I could say it that way. You work for the offices of righteousness. Maybe you think of it this way. Imagine you get a new job and you show up for work excited on the first day. And the first day, you're super excited for the new opportunities, excited to please your boss with hopes of moving up. And then during break time, you walk across the street to your old job with your old boss and you start working there. You're no longer employed there. You no longer belong. You don't even get paid. In fact, it costs you to be there. But I'm sure the old boss would be happy to take your free work. And that just seems crazy. Like, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. It seems crazy because... Why would we go back to the old boss? But that's what we do when we forget who our boss is and we go back to work for the old one that we no longer are a slave to. we no longer employed by that old boss. So you shouldn't use your gifts and talents and ability, also known as members or your body, as the, as the text says, for the old boss any longer. Everything we have now should be dedicated to the new boss, who is Jesus. And this is what leads to something much better. And it leads to something much better than just climbing a corporate ladder. This leads to eternity with Christ. We think, of course, well, that makes sense. Yet this is what we do when we slip back into sin and fail to obey. Because church, understand, just because we're new, as I've already said, it's still possible for us to sin, even though we're no longer bound by it. We are still in the flesh. And as long as we remain in these physical bodies, sin will still have a base to launch its attack. This is why it's so important to be obedient, to present our bodies and our members as slaves to righteousness. But to do that, we have to remember all we have in Christ. All we have in Christ. We were once dead, but now we're made alive. The old man is gone, the new, and, and now we're made new. And even though God is the one who brings about our salvation, we are called to obedience to live out 
our life in the gospel. So what does obedience look like? How do we present our members or our bodies to righteousness? What does that look like? Often we think there's all these things that we as Christians should not do, and Brent touched on this last week, and I'll just continue the thought. There's all these things we shouldn't do, and that's true. There are things we shouldn't do that are sinful things, but sometimes we can get like in this trap that Christianity is just a bunch of don'ts, like don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and it'll be okay. But sometimes that can distract us. We can be so focused on what we're not doing that we don't really pay attention to what we are doing. Are we spending all of our time making sure we're not doing certain things? Or are we spending our time utilizing the gifts that the Lord has given us for service, for his kingdom, for the good of his church? Are we actively seeking the Lord? Are we actively playing for his team? You know, athletes place themselves under the control of a master coach that has a purpose and a training plan. And Paul has shown that we all belong, or that, that at least we're born that way, into the team that practices the training plan of sin. The longer sin is practiced, the better, quote-unquote, we become at it until we become fully trained in wickedness. The gospel, however, brings us a new, brings us a new plan. It brings us news of a new gracious coach and a new training plan. We don't just stop practicing the coach freely accepts those who realize they don't want to be part of the old team and they aren't fit to be on the old team, but, are, but he's willing to accept, we're willing to accept the opportunity as a gift. After they become members of the new team, they find a lifelong and challenging training plan, gradually taking them from wickedness fitness to holiness fitness. The training plan requires obedience to the gracious coach, Jesus Christ. Paul stresses that a couple of times. It's not just to avoid things, although it's good to avoid certain things, but not just about doing that. It's also presenting our bodies to God as members of a new team. Later on in the book of Romans, we'll eventually get there. In chapter 12, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. See, the Christian life isn't just about living in a hole and never doing anything. Rather, the obedience we're called to is an act of obedience how are we active? How are you serving the Lord? How are you serving the church? What is your position on the new team, to say it another way? Paul is simply calling us to be in submission to the one who went to the cross on our behalf. He's saying, obey that one. Obey this one who has given you true freedom. This is Jesus who has died and was buried but rose again, proving he had the power over death. He's the one that we need to submit our hearts to and turn our lives over to. This is the one we need to present our bodies to and joyfully obey. And thanks be to God for his grace in making us new. You might say, well, how, do I, how do I do that? How do I let God make everything new? In my reading this week, I came across a story that I'll close with. I think this might help. Says this, a London businessman told the story of a warehouse property he was selling. The building had been abandoned for months and needed repairs. Vandals had damaged the doors, smashed all the windows, and strewn trash around the interior everywhere. As he showed the prospective buyer the property, he took pains to say that he would replace the broken windows and bring a crew in to correct any structural damage and clean out the garbage. And the guy said... The buyer said, forget about all those repairs. When I buy this place, 
I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building. I just want the site. So maybe you're here this morning and you need to give God the site. You need to completely turn everything over to him and let him tear down and rebuild. Compared with the renovation that God has in mind, our efforts to improve our own lives is as trivial as sweeping out a warehouse that's destined for the wrecking ball. When we become gods, the old life is over. He makes all things new, and he wants the sight and the permission to build. So let Christ make you new. And if you are, let him spur you on in obedience. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for all that you've done. Lord, that you've granted us forgiveness, but you've also granted us a life that can reflect so much more. So God, I pray that you would spur us all on in obedience, that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, enable us to, to serve and be your hands and feet here, that we would realize all we have in you, that it's more than just a, a, a transaction of not guilty or from guilty to not guilty, and it's more than just, just being forgiven, but it's a life that you've now given us to live for your purpose, to obey you. So Lord, help us to that end. And may you, you accomplish your work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.